Good morning. If you want to turn in your Bible to 1 John, we're going to read, uh, or I'm going to read 1 John 1, 1 through 1 John 2, 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to grab one of the Bibles around you and the chairs around you, and you can find this passage of Scripture beginning on page 1021. If you're not sure where 1 John is, it's near the end of the Bible. Uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Revelation. So it's near the end uh, of your Bible. Last week we finished our time in 1 and 2 Samuel after having spending, spent uh, the fall and winter and spring in those uh, two books, and we're going to spend a few weeks here this summer looking at 1 John. I found that I can read 1 John in about 15 minutes, so if you're one of those folks who likes to read, uh, as we're going to work through 1 John here all summer, maybe once a week or so, you might set aside 15 minutes to read through the book in its entirety, and, uh, and so that's a... Uh, an interesting and fun thing to do. So, 1 John, beginning in verse 1, verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to read to chapter 2, verse 2, Then we'll have a time of prayer before the message today. Everybody find it? All right, good. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world." May God bless the reading of His Word here this morning. Will you join me as we pray? God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your grace that through Christ we can be cleansed of our sin. We thank You that through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, we can have forgiveness of sin and new life in You forever. We ask, God, as we spend time in Your Word this morning, that You would remind us again of the good news that Jesus saves sinners and the good news that we can walk with you as those who have been saved. 
We thank you, God, that you have called us together as a body of believers to encourage one another with these words and to engage the people of our community with the good news that they might also hear and believe. So we pray for Mission Medford in August, and we ask God for effective ministry in our community that needs would be met and many would hear and receive Christ. We pray not only for our church, but we also pray for Grace Church in Central Point. Pray for Pastor DeVos as he serves there, that you would bless them with growth in the gospel, and many would come to know you as Savior. We pray also for Paul and Bridget Abbott as they serve you and the ministry of the gospel in Costa Rica. Give them strength as they continue to maintain the facilities there, and give them effectiveness in the classes they're teaching on English. We pray also for Gary Stewart, that you would be with him as he continues treatment, uh, be with Alice, uh, that her radiation treatments would be effective and do the job. Pray for Dale as he goes in for a procedure tomorrow that it would be effective and not hurt very much. God, we pray also for those who still need to come to you for forgiveness. We pray for Ron and Pam, Traveler, Edie, Daniel, and Terry. May they know you and your salvation this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1 John, beginning in verse 1, a famous journalist and author wrote this. His name was Christopher Hitchens. He was a journalist and author, a, septic, a skeptic, a secularist. We would call him an atheist, although he didn't like the term. He liked the term anti-theist. And he was, uh, he was a brilliant man. Uh, and he wrote many very, very well-known works, uh, and he was open and willing to debate the non-existence of God in his view. And here's a quote from one of his books that I'm going to read by way of beginning here. This is what Christopher Hitchens says. He passed away in 2011. We can only hope that he found Christ before that time. What happens to the faith healer and the shaman when any poor citizen can see the full effect of drugs or surgeries administered without ceremonies or mystifications? That's his question. What happens to the faith healer and the shaman when medicine is discovered? Roughly the, th the same thing as happens to the rainmaker when the climatologist turns up, or to the diviner from the heavens when school teachers get hold of elementary telescopes. His argument is that the existence of God and the immaterial or the unexplainable is only makes any sense in the absence of actual information. And as soon as an individual encounters an education, the need for God and the immaterial is no longer necessary in the world of the physical. We don't need God to heal us when we have antibiotics. We don't need the explanation of the heavens in August when the lights will go out in parts of Oregon. Knowing God, it seems to Hitchens, is, I should say, relegated to the immaterial. You know God because you need some kind of mystical explanation for the unknown, but real life is lived in the real world. And perhaps we laugh at that, maybe even with a sneer or looking down our condescending noses, but the fact is for the human condition, our default mode of operation is, I live life in the real world, and God lives His life in the spiritual and the immaterial world. 
God is my spiritual life, but, you know, let's be honest, i got a real life to live. i got to put food on the table and keep a roof over my head. So God is great, but somebody's got to go to work and pay the bills. God is fine and dandy in His spot Sunday mornings or maybe the occasional prayer shot to heaven when things get really dicey, but real life is lived in the real world. Now, as Christians, we're told we're not supposed to think that way, so I won't tell anybody you are. It'll be our little secret. So this was a major concern for the Apostle John when he wrote the book of 1 John. This isn't a new condition. This is something that the Christians in the late 80s and 90s, first century Christians, were also struggling with. So the question he seeks to answer, especially in the passage we're in this morning, is how do I know Jesus in the real world? I want to I know Jesus, but how do I know Jesus in the real world, the real stuff of life? i got to go to work. i got a, an ache in my back. My uh, kids are uh, too obedient. I gave you a minute on that one. Make sure. And i got to be honest with you as we read through 1 John here, this first chapter, this first section, John's answer is so unexpected. It is so almost startling that he begins it with his trump card. He knows that his answer, how do you live with Jesus in the real world? He knows his answer is going to be so startling to most religious people, including ourselves, that he starts with his trump card. And his trump card is this, uh, I hung out with Jesus. So look with me at verses uh, 1 through 4 of 1 John. How do we know Jesus in the real world? And John's first beginning, how he begins to answer this is, I really knew him. That which was from the beginning. He's talking about Jesus. That which we have seen and that which we have heard, uh, that which our own eyes have befailed, uh, that which we have touched. Do you remember at the Last Supper? And the Bible says the uh, disciple that Jesus loved, what did he do? He leaned back into the chest of Christ. So uh, John knows what Jesus smelled like and what the warmth of his presence was like. He really knew him. He knew Jesus, not the mystical spiritual concept floating through the uh, heavens. He knew Jesus uh, and what it looked like for the dust to rise from his sandals as he walked across the road. He says, Jesus is, was here. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him. I took food from his hand. I watched him eat. I heard him snore. John knew what it was like to experience the very physical presence of Jesus, but he's very careful here. He says, that which was from the beginning. Now, see, for us, our beginning is the day we were born. That was not Jesus' beginning. Jesus was born, but that was not his beginning. Jesus has always been. Jesus was there from the beginning. He's making reference even to creation here. But Jesus uh, doesn't have a beginning. He is God in the flesh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has no beginning and no end. And he says that uh, Jesus came to us from the Father. Look at verse 2. The life, he's referring here to Jesus, was made manifest. He was made known to us. We've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim His life. And his life was with the Father, and it was made known, made manifest to us. His eternal life is made known to us. The eternal life of Christ is made known to us through the person of Jesus. 
And eternal life is not merely a life that doesn't end. Eternal life is a quality of life. Jesus demonstrated what to live eternally means. It's to live like Him and with Him. An unending life can be very dull. An unending life with Jesus will be anything but dull. And this eternal life that Jesus came to make known to us is not merely never-ending. It's never empty. It's always full. So Jesus comes by the Father and for the Father to make known to us the eternal life that He brings to us. And look with me again at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard. What is that? What is it that He has seen and heard? Jesus. You want to argue with John about what he's seen and heard? What's his, his comeback if somebody argues with him? Oh, I'm sorry, were you there? Because I was. So, neener, neener. John was probably in his 90s when he wrote this, so maybe he wouldn't have said neener, neener. But I like to imagine he would have, so there. That which we have seen and heard, Jesus, we told you. We proclaimed also to you, so you may have fellowship with us, and indeed fellowship with the Father and with Jesus, the Christ. Jesus uh, came in the flesh, but He is no less eternal. Jesus came into the flesh. He is a human. He was born of a woman. He is no less eternal, and He comes to those of us who are human. That's all of us. To do for us what's already true of Him. Give us eternal life in our flesh. Not eternal life in some mystical, ethereal world of floaty surrounds thingies and clouds and, I assume, arrows with hearts on the end. He said, no, I want you to have eternal life as, as people, as humans, and, and so I'm going to come as a human to give human people, fleshly people, eternal life, and you will be able to fellowship with one another and with the Father and with the Son as, as people. We will be in Christ. The word we use for that is Christian. A little Jesus, little Christ. He is, he is the Christ. Christ, of course, is a title. To be the Christ is to say He is God. He is the anointed one, the King of all creation. And as Christians, we are identified and we fellowship in Christ. We really know Him. We don't merely know Him in some mystical way. We know Him as people, as our brother. To be in Christ, to be Christian, means our life is not merely modified as a Christian. Our life is identified as a Christian. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Sometimes we might describe ourselves as a Christian in these terms. Maybe you would say, I'm a Christian businessman. I'm a Christian employee. I'm a Christian builder. I'm a Christian mom or a Christian dad. And the idea here is that term Christian modifies the manner in which we do what we are. I am a business person, so if I'm a Christian business person, therefore I'm going to do business Christianly, which means in some ways uh, maybe I'll do it in an ethical manner. If I'm a Christian employee, maybe I'll be an employee. It's informed by and modified by the fact that I claim a Christ. If I'm a Christian mom or dad, maybe my parenting will be informed by and modified by uh, how, uh, who Christ is. But see, Jesus didn't come to merely modify what we already are. He came to change what we are. As it turns out, you can be a very ethical business person and not know Christ. 
You can be a fantastic mom and a fantastic dad and not know Jesus. You can be an amazing employee, dedicated, loyal, and hardworking, and still be destined for eternity without God. What Jesus is doing, He's saying, I want to come to you and I want to invade your life such that I'm not merely modifying your already existing life. I want to change who you are. I want your life to be eternal. I want your identity to be bound up in fellowship with me and with one another. What John is saying here in the nature of the fellowship we have with one another and with God is this. The, the thing we have in common is, as Christians is if you take Christ out, we die. It would be better for Christians to have the oxygen removed from the room than to have Christ removed from the room. You see how that's fundamentally different than me saying, well, I'm a, I'm a dad, so I'm going to tack Jesus on there and be a better dad. No, I'm a dad, and if Jesus leaves, I'm a dead dad. And that's the fellowship of the believers. We say, we claim Christ, and if Christ leaves, we're toast. If Christ leaves, we're dead. Without Him, He is the only life-sustaining and life-moving force in our life. To be a Christian, to be in Christ, becomes and is our whole identity. Who are you? I am in Christ. And with Christ, we have fellowship with the Father, and in Christ, we have fellowship with one another. And we proclaim this because we're we have a testimony that says, I have, I have seen and I have heard uh, the work of Christ. And what John says here, and it's at the end of verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. John says, what I saw and heard I told you about. I didn't make anything up. I'm telling you what we saw and what we heard and what we touched. I'm telling you about the physical encounter I had with Christ himself. And this is what John wants us to know. Is Christ came in the flesh, and so therefore Christ is known in the flesh. How do we know Jesus in the real world? John's short answer is, there's no other way to know Him. To know Christ is to only know Him in the real world, because that's the only place that Christ made Himself known. Notice Christ did not came, come as a Facebook post or a tweet. He came as a human in relationship. And the only way to know Christ is in the real world because He is God in the flesh and He is present. So John claims that he knew Christ in person. And the beginning of the answer is, how do we know Jesus in the real world? John's answer is, I really knew Him in the real world. That is the only way to know Him. As we move on now to verses 5 through 10, I want you to think about this. It's important to understand that John knew Christ in person because as we uh, cover these next few verses, uh, his answer is unconventional, and we need to trust what he says because he, in fact, was with Christ. We should also trust what's here because it's the Bible. It turns out it's in charge. Verses 5 through 10, you find it with me? This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Knowing Jesus in the world, real world, what is it like to follow Him? What is it really like to follow Jesus in this life? Verse 6, 
If we have fellowship with Him, or if we say we have fellowship with Him, and we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The short answer is, to walk with Christ, what it's really like to follow Jesus, is to walk in the light, not the darkness. All right, could that answer be any more vague? Uh, No, let's make it more so. Turn with me to John chapter 1. I'm kidding. It's not going to become more vague. We're going to get more specific. John chapter 1. Not 1 John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1, written by the same guy. I'm going to read the first four verses of John chapter 1. That's what he said back then. In the beginning was the Word. He's referring to Christ by saying the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What we discover about what it means to live in the light of Christ and the light of God is that light is this essential quality of God which is both life-giving Uh, It's life displaying, uh, and it's life found in God's righteousness. So what you'll normally think of when you read a verse like, to to follow Christ is to not walk in the darkness, you immediately go in our uh, well-trained Christian minds, okay, that means to walk with Christ is to not be naughty. Because obviously to, to do naughty things is to walk in darkness. That's what we immediately do. But John never uses those terms this way. When he talks about the light of God, he's talking both about God's righteousness as well as God's life. That's what he said in John chapter 1, that Jesus is the life and light. That, that uh, God is the source of our life and God is the source of life that is righteous. To walk in the light is to walk in God's life itself, the life that only God can give. God is our, uh, the source of our life. God is the source of our righteousness. And what John is saying is if you want to have life, you need to have fellowship with the Father. The way religious people think is the way I have life is to do what God wants. You do good, you get God, you get life. It's a very simple equation. It's an equation mankind has been using uh, for all of time. You, you, to have life, you've got, you got to know God. To know God, you've got to be good. Be good, get God, get life. John here is going to make a very, very different argument. He is going to say this. We have fellowship with God by walking in His light. Let me begin with a silly illustration. Kind of wake you up again. Ready for a silly illustration? I mean, it really is. It's ridiculous. So two guys have two cars. Already you can tell it's ridiculous. One guy kind of keeps his car. He likes to take care of his car. He doesn't drive it on dirt roads. He doesn't want the rocks to kick up and nick it. And, and uh, so it's in his driveway and keeps it, takes care of it, maintains it. But as is typical in the summertime in Oregon, you know, when you have wildfires and other things, dust settles on it. So every now and then he goes out with a duster and will, and will dust it off, right? The guy next door to him, though, he's one of these guys that's got a pickup that's got an ATV sticker on the bumper. I mean, you can't see it because it's just covered in mud. He just cleans the ATV sticker off 
so he doesn't get a ticket for going for, so he's going to go up on John's Peak and he's going to throw some mud, do some mud bogging. So you got two cars. You got one, you don't even know what color it is because it's so covered in mud. I know, you guys are like, oh, that sounds like fun. Okay, later, not right now. And then you got the other guy, his car is just a little dusty, he's going to dust it off. So the guy with the muddy car comes out and he says, holy cow, my car is dirty, I better get to the car wash. Takes truck to the car wash, comes back. So the question is, whose car is clean? I mean, it's a, is, I told you, what, isn't it silly? Whose car is clean? The guy who intentionally got it muddy or the guy who didn't wash his car? The clean car is the, one, the guy who was smart enough to go take his car to the car wash. And it was, uh, the, the, the point of what kind of dirt is, is irrelevant. The guy who saw his car was muddy and said, it's dirty, I better get it cleaned, he ends up with a clean car. The guy with, with the dusty car still has a dusty car. So the one who had the mud all over his car is actually to the advantage because he's more aware of the fact that he needs to take it to the car wash. Look with me at verse 6 of chapter 1, 1 John. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Walking in the darkness is not to have God's life or righteousness. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, is the car wash for our sin. You have to see here how he framed his argument. He did not say, get clean so you can walk in the light. What did he say? Walk in the light so you will get clean. He said, the righteousness is going to come when we expose ourselves to the light of God and we walk into it and we, and we receive his life by faith and his righteousness by faith and we say, Holy cow, I am filthy. Will you clean me, God? And what does he do every single time? Let's get it on. No problem. Every single time. We come to him, and he says, uh, we're exposed to his light, and, and, the, and the depth of our evil is exposed. And we say, holy cow, I'm dirty. And he says, let's go to the car wash. The car wash of the blood of Christ where we're cleansed of all of our sin. We have fellowship with God. Not because we were good, we have fellowship with God because we're in the truth. God, I need your cleansing. And his cleansing is provided by the blood of Christ. What does it mean to not walk in the light of Christ? Look at verse 8 and verse 10. We're going to skip verse 9 for a minute. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What does it mean to walk in the darkness? To claim you're in the light and to claim no sin. Verse 10, he repeats it. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Worse yet, if we claim we're not dirty, we're saying God is a liar. If we claim we don't need a car wash, we're saying God's a big fat liar. To walk in the darkness is to say I'm not that bad. To walk in the light is one who exposed to the truth of who God is and what Christ has done says, I sin, I'm a sinner, I need to be cleaned. That's what it means to walk in the light. A life of believing God and confessing sin. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Walking with Jesus in the light. What is it really like to walk with Jesus and to follow Jesus in the light? It's to wake up in the morning, remind myself again, I believe what he did, and confess. God, I blew it again. 
Walking with Jesus, the real walk with Christ is to walk with Him in the light, which is a routine pattern of belief and confession, not, not conversion and regeneration over and over again. The walk of life in Christ for the converted, for the regenerate, is one of ongoing, I trust you, Lord, and I confess my sin. One commentator, one author put it this way, Christians, by definition, believe in Christ and confess their sins. What does it mean to be a little Christ, to be one who believes and confesses? This is what's so silly about modern Christianity. I don't mean to offend you much, just a little. We think the, the, the plan of Christianity is to see how good we can be so we don't have to confess as much. I've just described many of our Christian lives, haven't I? My job is to know God, uh, be really obedient, so maybe by the time I die I won't be, have to confess as much as I do today. Newsflash, you will confess more the more you know Christ. The closer you get to Him, the more He will expose the dirt you don't even have a clue about. And that one big, ugly, hairy sin that you just can't shake, one day God will give victory over it for you, and you will praise His name, and you will see the ten others you haven't been ten paying attention to. And you will confess more. And that is the real walk of Christian life with the real Jesus in the real life. I love it. I won't, whoever said this will be, remain nameless, so don't raise your hand because it was one of you guys. He says, isn't it frustrating when you're confessing your sin while you're sinning? Anybody, anybody done that? One famous pastor, I won't use his name, said this. He said, I can't get through a prayer or a sermon without sinning. He said, well, that's offensive. He said, no, 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 that's a person walking in the light, having their heart exposed to the truth of who Jesus is. We're not being good to try and get blessed and putting that on repeat. Okay, I've got to be better, so God will bless me. Repeat, repeat. I'm not good enough, I'm not, or, or God isn't blessing me, so I must be doing something wrong. What a horrible way to live. Instead, we believe in Christ and we confess our sins. Repeat. Believe in Christ, repeat, re confess our sins. And you wake up one morning, hey, I didn't have to confess that sin. And then you'll see three others that you hadn't been confessing. What is it really like to follow Christ? Believe and confess, put on repeat, then we go to heaven. So the question is, if that's the truth, if Jesus came in the real flesh to minister to real people in the real world, and to really follow Jesus in the real world is a life of faith, and confession, what do we need if that's the truth? If that's the truth, what is it that we would need? What you need from God will depend on what your goal is in living for God. So here's two options. There are more, but I'm going to give you two options. Number one, I have, we might have a goal as a Christian to be well-behaved. Maybe as a Christian you say, you know what, I want to be a good Christian. I want to be well-behaved. If you're honest, perhaps, maybe you're an honest Christian in this category, I want to be well-behaved in public. Your baby steps. What do you need if your goal as a Christian is to be well-behaved? You need God to help you be good. I might suggest you need a God who is a very effective life coach. God who will give you ten steps to overcoming your weaknesses, fears, anxieties, what have you. If your goal is to be well-behaved, you need a God who can help you to be good. But what if your goal is not to be well-behaved? What if your goal is to be righteous? What do you need? 
If your goal is not merely to be well-behaved, but rather in Christ your goal is to be righteous, what you need is to be made clean. I would suggest this. If your goal is to be righteous, you need someone to make you clean even though you're not well-behaved. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if we had an opportunity to know someone who would make us clean despite the fact that we're terribly misbehaving? Look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. How do we know Jesus in the real world? Number one, we have to understand He came to the real world to know real people. Number two, we need to know what it's like to really follow Him, which is trust, belief, I should say, and confession. Finally, how do we know Jesus in the real world? We have to understand what we really need. My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. We have to be understand something about the language here. It's a little bit tricky in the English, but he's using this word sin uh, in one verse two different ways. He's saying, my little children, write these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, first of all, the but there should be an and. Don't scratch it out. That would feel sacrilegious, but it can go either way, and I would prefer and. Uh, and if anyone does sin, what he's saying here is, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but that's a specific sin he's writing to and about in, in the context of this church. He's saying, I don't want you to be these people who think that you can uh, just experience God in the spiritual world and claim you don't have any sin. The sin he's writing against in the entire book of 1 John is people who don't think they're bad enough to need forgiveness. And this uh, sentence here, he's saying, I don't want you to be among those who claim a righteousness of your own, which is the worst sin. And when you do sin, that is, behave contrary to the standards of God, I want you to understand you, an you have an advocate with the Father. So what is he saying? I don't want you to sin by denying that life is from Christ. I don't want you to sin by denying that you need His righteousness. I don't want you to sin by saying you can earn favor with God through your own good behavior. I don't want you to sin by thinking that you can uh, line your life with good deeds and therefore insulate yourself from judgment. And when you do sin by behaving poorly, saying unkind words, gossiping, uh, committing adultery, uh, greedy after financial gain and selfish purposes, when you sin, and when you sin, guess what? You have an advocate. Let me read both verses in chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin by denying Christ. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation or the atonement for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What we really need is, a, is an advocate. What we really need is not only an advocate, but an advocate who's willing to take all of our punishment, and that's precisely what Jesus is. Hebrews 7, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read Hebrews 7, through 24, or you can just listen as I read. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests, he's thinking back to the Old Testament, were many in number because they were prevented by death 
from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. So we have an advocate, a priest, who stands before God and says he has atoned for all of our sins. And when does his priesthood and his advocacy for us end? When does that end? Oh, just when he dies, which he can't do because he defeated death when he was raised from the dead. So his, his, his advocacy for us, his priesthood for us will never end. Now, some of you are already thinking about ways you can get out of that. You say, well, well listen, but certainly there comes to sort of a point where the, where the advocate says now, okay, listen, I've atoned, but let's be reasonable. I mean, you have been doing this thing for a long time. It's time to get over that. Last shot at this, and then you're toast. You're done. Right? Does he qualify it in that way? It's, uh, he is our priesthood forever unless we just can't get over that one really bad one. No, but I mean, that's how we tend to process this thing with God. We say, God can't possibly like me. I mean, sure, he loves me, but he's required to because he said it in the Bible, so he's stuck. But I know he doesn't like me that much. And I know this really bugs him to death that I can't get over this issue. Like, like Jesus is my advocate, but begrudgingly so. Show up again, Jesus, I'm dirty, I need to be cleaned again. Oh, for the love of Pete. What's Peter have to do with this, Jesus? He lives to make intercession. What does Jesus do for a hobby? Makes intercession. When he's got an afternoon to kill, what's he do? He's an advocate. When he's swamped and, it's just the, and the work is just piled up, what's he going to do anyway? Be an advocate. That's what he's into. That's what, he didn't come from heaven to earth, die and raise again because he wasn't into it. Because God never does anything he's not totally into. That's what he does. That's how he rolls. He's an advocate. You say, well, I'm taking advantage of him. No, he's taking advantage of you. Because he's so into advocating and we supply all the advocation he might ever need. He always lives to make intercession, and you don't get to cop out and say, well, you don't know how bad I am. I know, but he does, and he's still into it. I can't explain it. If I was your advocate, you'd be up a creek, and you'd be the same way with me. He's not like we think he is. And this is why John started by saying, before you start hedging your bets and telling me this possibly can't possibly be true, let me explain something. I was with the guy for three years. I know what he's like. This is what he's like. He is an advocate. It will never end. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, one, one other place. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Here's what's funny about Hebrews 10. We tend to think that it's hard to get to God because we've been so bad. And what the author of Hebrews tells us, no, the reason it's hard to get to so close to God is because we don't have an assurance of what we believe. We walk through the rended body of Christ, we are sprinkled with His blood, and we are righteous. 
The one telling you you are not righteous is either your own mind or the enemy himself. Jesus would never say that because it's not true. To walk in the light of Christ is to walk as one who is righteous, and we boldly walk in and we're clean. We enter, we hold on close, and we confess. Verse 2 of John, 1 John chapter 2, what does he say? He is the propitiation. He is our atoning sacrifice in the NIV for our sins. We need someone to make us righteous, and he handles it. We need somebody to make us righteous, and he handles it. Christians, we need someone continually uh, who is operating on our behalf to make us and keep us righteous, and it is not you and I. We do not need someone to help us be better behaved. We need someone to make us righteous even though we're poorly behaved. And Jesus does that through His own blood. How do we know Jesus in the real world? Number one, He came to the real world, so that's the only place to know Him. You can't know Him in some kind of mystical, ephemeral world of uh, whatever, whatever you're into. We know Jesus in the real world of real life. It's real grit. It's real dirt. It's real stuff. So to follow Him is to believe and confess every day. To follow Christ is to create a habit and a routine in our life where I say, no, I trust you, Jesus. I, am, I, I believe you. I'm righteous. I am done believing the lie that when I'm in your light, I should feel guilty. When I'm in your light, I am righteous. So now I have the boldness to openly confess all that stuff. The car is dirty. In the light, we're glad to take it to the car wash. So what we really need in our life is an advocate, not a life coach. John is an eyewitness to the risen Christ. He saw him before he died. He saw him hung on a cross in his death throes. He saw the empty tomb. He ate meals with him after his resurrection. He is a recipient of the personal, in-person teachings of Jesus Christ himself. And I want us to understand this, again, to return to my silly illustration. He wants us to know this, to walk in the light of Jesus is not learning to keep the car clean, it's knowing where the car wash is. To walk in the light of Jesus is not learning how to keep the car clean, it's learning to know where the car wash is. What if as Christians we had a culture that celebrated this ongoing yet already finished cleansing of Christ? What if you had a culture that said, we celebrated the fact that in the midst of the real world, the real gunk of our life, we celebrated the ongoing cleansing of Christ. The joy that we would experience walking into a room like this with no hesitation, uh, no guilt, no shame because Jesus made us clean. Instead, historically, we as Christians have chosen to celebrate the fact that we don't need cleansing. With our noses in the air, we act like we are different than the world around us. I have a neighbor, they have a Jeep, and uh, 
with one of those stickers, Fort Boyle Drive. And uh, every now and then I know what they were doing that weekend. One weekend in particular, uh, they went up mud bogging or whatever you do up there. Looked like they kept the rubber side down uh, most of the time. But they did something really extra, take it to the next level muddy car, is they decided, hard top Jeep, but they decided to go without the doors. And so I walked, I was walking out to do something in the yard, probably yell at my neighbor, no. Um, and there was as much mud in the Jeep as there was out the Jeep. There, I mean, you could, I mean it was a, it's a copper-colored Jeep, but it was a mud Jeep. I mean, it wasn't even the shape of a Jeep at that point. And there was as much mud, except where the people were sitting, you could see the outline of their bodies. It was really... You know, and the trick is that, you know, they got the hose out and cleaned it off. You know, and, and we, we as Christians, instead, we would rather celebrate the fact that we didn't get the car dirty. I said no to whatever. And nothing is so irritating for Christians as, as we're saying no uh, to some sin that we would rather do. And some Yahoo down the aisle from us, down the road from us at church, is not saying no. It drives us nuts. Because, again, nothing is more offensive to us than other people's sin. The fact is, if we understand what John understood in his experience with Christ, uh, we need to be cleaned. We need to celebrate the fact that we know where we receive righteousness. We know where we receive our atoning. We have an advocate. He lives to make intercession for us. There's people in this room who have sins that if uh, other people knew about it, nobody would talk to them anymore, and you think that you're the exception. You're not the exception. You're the rule. God saves sinners. You no longer have to feel like you're the black sheep of the family. There isn't one. The family is sinners redeemed by God. It's muddy cars who need to get clean. That is the whole family. You're not the exception to God's plan. He would save someone as bad as you. You are the plan. He saves people as bad as you. I know there's those of us here today that in your faith you're just holding on by a, by a thread, either because of the circumstances of life or because of your own sense of guilt and shame because you've got things in your life that we, you, you think they wouldn't, they wouldn't even believe what I'm into. So I want to, I want to say something, something to you. And, you know, maybe I'm not supposed to say this, and so maybe I'll get in trouble, which is fine. I know I won't. We've got good elders of this church, by the way, if you didn't know that. If you're holding on by a thread, you don't know which way is up, and you can't beat that really gnarly sin, and you can muster the strength by the Spirit of God alone to believe and to confess. I want to tell you what, what Christ will tell you the day you cross the threshold into glory. What is He going to say? Man, you're doing great. Man, can you, you're doing great. Because your righteousness is not yours. You're, you're clinging to me by a thread? A thread of Christ is better than the strongest cable in the world. You're, clean. You're doing great. Trust me. I will make you clean again and again and again. And I'll tell you when it's going to run out. It's going to be never because that's what I'm into. 
And I know there's some religious folk in here today. And they say, oh, you tell people that, they're going to go off the deep end. They're going to go off the rails. They're going to do all kinds of gnarly stuff. Two things on that for you religious people. Number one, you're wrong. They're already doing the gnarly stuff. That's not going to make it worse. And do you really think the power and love of Christ, the grace of Christ, would allow us to stay where we are? I happen to trust Jesus a little more than that. I actually happen to be one who believes those who receive the grace of Christ will be so moved they will want to live in the grace of Christ. People who have been overflowed with the love of God do not live in their old ways very long. So get off your religious high horse. I'm talking to myself as much as you, but mostly to you. How do we know Jesus in the real world? It's the only way to know Him. He's in the real world. The pattern of the Christian life of knowing Christ is believe and confess. What? Repeat. So what do we need if our job is to be righteous without behaving well? We need an advocate who will never stop advocating for us. And we have one. We should have a Christian culture that celebrates not that we're learning better to keep the car clean, but instead we know where the car wash is.